Hey friends, this is Linda, and you're listening to Calling Water. Each week on our podcast, we look at a passage of scripture and ask ourselves two questions. What does it mean, and what does it call us to do? We're continuing the story of Job with today's episode, State My Case. We'll be looking at assorted passages in the book of Job to see how Job boldly made his defense before God, and whether or not we can do the same as well. Let's get started. I'm not sure if I've mentioned this before, but I really love legal dramas. Of course, I know very little about law in real life, but if it's anything like what I've seen in shows or movies, it's all really fascinating to me. I'm especially intrigued by some of the standard practices that are in place to make the justice system as fair as possible. The first of these is the concept of burden of proof innocent until proven guilty. This means that it's not the defendant's job to come up with evidence to prove their innocence. The burden of proof is on the prosecution. They're the ones who are going to have to procure the evidence to prove that someone is in fact guilty. And the second thing that I find curious is that so much of it is based on case law or precedent. A lot, if not all, of the arguments to be made depends on whether or not that argument has been made before and if it had received a favorable decision by a judge. I mean, this is why law students have to memorize so many past law cases, right? It's much easier to get a ruling in your favor if a similar ruling has been made in the past. By the way, if you're listening and you are a lawyer, Go ahead and let me know if I've got this all wrong, because my sources are vastly from fiction. But let's assume my observations are correct, and that this is how the law works in real life. I bring them up because in the verses we're about to discuss today, we find that Job is pretty much acting as though he's on trial. And it's not a bad analogy either. After we learn about all the tragedy that happened to Job in one fell swoop, the vast majority of the book is a conversation Job has with his friends, who initially come to comfort him, but ends up being incredibly unhelpful. They pretty much launch a series of attacks on his character, which forces Job to defend himself, as he does in Job chapter 23, verses 2 through 7. He says the following, Even today, my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say to me. Would he vigorously oppose me? No, he would not press charges against me. There the upright can establish their innocence before him, and there I would be delivered forever from my judge. Job is essentially saying that if he could just have his day in court and bring his case before God, he would for sure be found innocent. So let's set the scene. In the beginning of the book, we found that this Satan character challenged God by saying that his man Job not as righteous as he claims he is, and Satan, funny enough, is also known as the accuser. 
So this makes him the prosecutor by default, which makes Job the defendant and God the judge. And in the 30 some odd chapters that follow, we don't hear from Satan or God. But like I mentioned earlier, we do hear from Job and his friends who take turns trying to rationalize Job's suffering. He converses with Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, all of whom represent pretty much the best of ancient philosophy and wisdom. And they have three cycles of back and forth dialogue, chapters 3 to 14, then 15 through 21, and finally chapters 20 through, through 28. And though initially they came to comfort Job, they end up being witnesses for the prosecution, if you will, because this is their argument. Simply put, God is just. He rewards those who are faithful and punishes those who are sinful. And since Job is suffering, clearly this is divine retribution for something he has done wrong in his life. And among some of their words of wisdom for him, here are a few pearls. Eliphaz tells Job in chapter 4, verse 7, Consider now, who, being innocent, has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? Basically telling Job, if you were innocent or upright, this would not be happening to you. His friend Bildad says in chapter 18, verse 5, The lamp of a wicked man is snuffed out. The flame of his fire stops burning implying that Job is such a wicked man. And lastly, his friend Zophar says in chapter 20, verses 6 through 7, though the pride of the godless person reaches to the heavens and his head touches the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Yes, like his own dung. These are the words that his friends chose to say to Job, who, if you recall, lost his family, everything he owned, and was now in great physical pain. But in some ways, their reasoning is understandable. If we are to assume that God is just and everything he does is just, then there is no logical explanation for why Job, who claims to be innocent, should be enduring such hardship. No, the fault lies with Job. And the thing is, Job believes the same things to be true of God, which is why he doesn't understand his suffering given his blamelessness. I mean, in God's own words, Job was considered blameless and upright, and yet these things happened to him. Even though in the beginning, Job was able to still praise God for being the one who gives and takes away as he pleases, now it's turned into a lament. Yes, God, you can give and take away, and you should, but why have you done so to me? And he doesn't hold back his feelings either. He is in unimaginable torment, and he makes it known in his words to his friends. No filter. In chapter 3, verses 20 through 22, he says, Why is light given to those in misery, and life to the bitter of soul? To those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave. This is grim, right? 
Job is in so much agony that he wishes for death. And in fact, he wishes he were never born. But that's not all. He says in Job chapter 7, verse 16, I despise my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone. My days have no meaning. He's saying life is not worth living if it has to be lived in this way. And, you know, I'm sure some of us have thought something similar in our worst moments as well. And in Job chapter 10, verses 8 through 9, he asks God, Your hands shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me? Remember that you molded me like clay. Will you now turn me to dust again? And he knows God is all-powerful, but what Job is describing here is that God seems to be abusing his omnipotence, or at the very least, using it arbitrarily. Job knows he gets no say in how God does things, but he does resent that God's hand seems to be against him. And moreover, he is further confounded by the fact that the so-called wicked are not suffering. So Job's conclusion is that since he is innocent and doesn't deserve divine punishment, but he seems to be getting it anyway, and the evil people that do deserve punishment aren't getting it, something is wrong with the system. Either God is unjust or God is just doing things at random. So these are the arguments Job and his friends make to show that Job is innocent and not so innocent, respectively. But pause for a second and think about what is being said. The questions that keep coming up are not even about Job at all. Not really. Yes, the central question is, why is Job suffering if he's innocent? But all the arguments for and against Job all have to do with the nature of God. Effectively, God is the one on trial. Job is just exhibit A. Twist! See, Satan, by testing Job, was directly challenging God. He is questioning God's relationship with humankind. And we talked about this a little last time, but Satan is under the impression that God is buying people's faithfulness by blessing them richly. And then each of Job's friends confirmed this by saying that it is in God's nature to give good things to good people. So because Job is going through something categorically bad, there must be a reason God is allowing this to happen. Job must have done something wrong. So somewhere along the line, we stopped looking at human agency and decided to hang everything on the actions and inactions of God. And we'll take a break here from the Bible story because we will talk about what God has to say about all this in next week's episode. But based on the things we have heard so far in Job's chapter 3 through 28, what are our takeaways for today? Well, this is where we come full circle with all that legal talk I mentioned at the beginning. And the first thing I talked about was this concept of burden of proof, right? So whereas our legal system says we are innocent until proven guilty, in the heavenly court system, if there is one, it's more like guilty until proven innocent. Because there is so much evidence stacked against us to condemn us of our guilt and our sin. 
Now, Job may have been able to say with absolute confidence that he had no guilt, but how many of us are able to do the same? I want to say none of us, because we all have sinned and we all continue to sin. But by the grace of God, that is not the end of the line for us. God doesn't ask us to prove our innocence, mainly because we are not. But we are justified through Jesus, through whom we have forgiveness of our sins. So we're innocent, not because we truly are, but because Christ makes us so. So because of this, this week I'm personally called to repentance. Because that's one thing we don't see from Job in all of his railings against God. Job was so confident in his integrity that he not once asks God for forgiveness. I mean, granted, Job was innocent. God said so himself. But how did Job know that was true? It's kind of a catch-22 situation. To think you are blameless and righteous carries with it the sin of spiritual pride. Take, for example, one of the parables Jesus told in Luke chapter 18. Reading from verses 9 through 14, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see, even if you are as righteous as you think you are, don't get complacent. Don't use that as your arguments to God as to why you deserve the finer things in life. Humbly accept that you are, as great as you are, still a sinner. Allow God to exalt you and declare you to be innocent and righteous. Secondly, let's look at this principle of legal precedent. And if you remember, a precedent is a previous court decision that becomes the authority for deciding similar cases in the future. When it comes to our judgments about God, that precedent can be found in scripture. The Bible is replete with constant exhortations to God's people to simply remember. Remember what God has done. Remember God's goodness. Remember God's faithfulness. Remember God brought you out of Egypt. Remember God provided for you in the wilderness. God's word contains all the sources you need that show that God is and always has been who we know him to be. So instead of putting God on trial like we normally do and demanding to know why, as though God owes us any kind of explanation, let's just 
remember. Let's look up that precedent that shows us again and again that God is good and his goodness stands independent of our human experience. God isn't good because he gives us good things. God is good because God is good. Job, in all his suffering, never lost his faith in God. And that is because in Job chapter 23, verse 12, we find him saying, I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. That means, yes, let's be more diligent in studying the word of God. We don't all have to be Bible scholars, but we all need to know what it says because it should dictate and inform how we live. Now, this doesn't mean that whenever we're going going through tough times, we need to just suck it up and deal with it. Bring your hurt, your frustrations, your bitterness, your anger, even your unbelief. Bring them all to God. Job did. In chapter 7, verse 11, Job says, Therefore, I will not keep silent. I will speak out in anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. And we can too. Job speaks many times about his suffering and in response to the accusation and not so comforting words of comfort from his friends. In each of these diatribes, you can sense his despair and bitterness. And these are justified emotions from a completely human perspective and even from a divine perspective because God doesn't reprimand Job or us for that matter for the feelings we have. But state your case before God as Job did. Mourn as Job did. Lash out even as Job did. Seriously, you can. But as you do, be reminded that we are all in fact guilty. We are sinful. We are undeserving. But somehow God loves us so deeply and unexplainably. So may that be your source of comfort and encouragement for today, that you are seen, that you are heard, that you are known, and still you are loved anyway. Let's pray. God, how many of us, when you look down from the heavens, can be considered blameless and upright in your eyes? And yet we raise our voices and demand that you answer for the ways that troubles persist in our lives. But you don't turn us away. Rather, you patiently allow us to speak carelessly from our scars. So forgive us for our pride and misguided notions of you. Forgive us for forgetting who you are and the lengths to which you have gone to save us and help us to always trust in you, in your plans to redeem us, in your grace that frees us, and in your love that sustains us. Have mercy on us, a sinner, each and every one of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.